Today's scripture is from Luke 14, 25 through 35. Follow along as I read. Now large crowds were accompanying Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't sit down first and compute the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to, com to finish the tower, all who see it will begin to make fun of him. They will say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to confront another king in battle, will not sit down first and determine whether he is able, with 10,000, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he cannot succeed, he will send a representative while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all his own possessions. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how can its flavor be restored? It is of no value for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. The one who has the ears to hear had better listen. The word of the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning and just to thank you for this worship time, reflecting that indeed it's in Christ alone, it's in your Son's name. Lord, we marvel at your grace that you've lavished on us as people. Father, we come to this text and it's very pointed. <laughs> it's actually very difficult. It's in the ears of the first century, it would have been fingernails across the blackboard, and even for us today, the, the, the thought of what does it really mean to follow you? So, Father, guide us in the text. Move me out of the way and allow your word to penetrate our hearts as you have promised it will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 14, and if this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. We are journeying through the Gospel of Luke, or if you're joining us online, uh, welcome as well. But Luke chapter 14 is the text we are at. And let me just give you, uh, it's, a, it's a perfect text to prepare us for the missions conference, I might add. Uh, it also is perfect because it, it summarizes where we have been in this section of Luke from 951 up till the 1424. There's this rhetoric that Jesus has had primarily dedicated to the religious rulers. And, it, and Jesus isn't trying to win friends and influence people. <laughs> he is very direct. And he's warning us as those who seek to follow the Lord, do not do what they are doing. And we talked about worrying and, and hypocrisy and, and all that that entails. And he gets to this section, and some scholars say it summarizes. Others say, no, 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 it, it's springing into the next section. And in many ways, it indeed, it is a hinge in the narrative. Because Jesus is now going to turn his attention directly to his followers and that will be the case primarily through the rest of the gospel. And so the tide has changed a bit when we get to 1425. And the text that you just heard read is this call. And 1425 says there were large crowds accompanying Jesus. And in so doing, Jesus is going to give us 
three ways that you follow him. What does it mean to follow God? Well, this text is going to make that very clear. It's very direct. Jesus spares no punches, does he? Notice what he says here in the text. He says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, that's a very strong term. And you can look at it in the Greek. It's still a strong term. <laughs> you don't need to know Greek to know that that's a strong term. He says, hate. He says, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters. In other words, the immediate family, if you don't hate them, then you cannot be my disciple. This is shocking to our ears, but especially in the first century where in the first century, it's, it's all based around community, around the family. And you, they're hearing this, and it's got to be hard. Plus, let's don't forget the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. Honor your parents, right? It's the, only, it's the only command with a promise. You'll live long if you obey them. Kids, hear up, listen up, right? Well, that's great. Uh, it, it, and so it, it goes against how they've been taught religiously. We'll see that that's not necessarily the case. We'll get to that in a minute. But this idea is so foreign to those who claim to be followers of God. And Jesus said, you've got to hate them. So scholars pontificate. What in the world does Jesus mean by hating your family members? And there's two views. And one of these is that, oh, what this is, is a typical Semitic hyperbole. And thus, what Jesus is saying, to love Jesus more and to love others less. It certainly fits with the parallel text found in Matthew 10, 37, which says, whoever loves father, mother more than me. So now it's not hate, but if you love them more than me, he is not worthy to be followers of me. And yet, love less is what they're arguing the term means here. Uh, doesn't fit with the normal nuance of that term. It's used by Luke elsewhere, and it's not used of loving less. It's referring to how your enemies interact with you. And so the term seems to be much stronger than a water pistol. <laughs> uh, this is a bazooka. So what do you do with this? And this is the second point, and I, I think this is what is being conveyed here. It's not about loving less. It's about being single-minded, one scholar writes, the point here is that where there is hate, no ties that bind limit one's freedom of action. This type of understanding we see with the Levites in Exodus 32 when they're told to take out swords and kill their brothers and their sons because they have committed heinous sin. The call is to be devoted single-mindedly. The concept is not foreign in the ancient world in the first century. Socrates talked about that a single-minded devotion is necessary to truth. In fact, he goes on to state that you, you have to devalue your family loyalties and even your concern about your body, which Jesus is going to bring up possibly here. It's also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls the Qumran literature that was found in the 1940s but uh, uh, gives us insight into the first century. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll find many manuscripts that call for us to love our family, care for our family, but 
There's also teachings within the Dead Sea Scrolls that one is to reject one's father and mother for the sake of God. Isn't that interesting? And so here you have what is clear, I would argue, it implies that above all the readiness and determination to abandon even one's mother and father is in order and, and necessary to enter this new family. Later in Luke's gospel, we're not there yet, Luke 18, the text reads, Jesus stating, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, brothers or sisters, parents, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Some scholars try to downplay this a little bit and say, well, you know, if you understood the first century culture to follow Jesus, they're going to be ostracized from their community and the family. Similar even today with a Muslim, in many Muslim countries, for an individual to become a believer, there'll be outright rejection, if not an honor killing from the family because you've abandoned us by embracing this heretic, Jesus. And, and so some have argued that's the case, but I mean, let's think about this for a minute. While we don't live in a Muslim country, there are times when seeking to serve the Lord creates questions from family members, hurt feelings, and even misunderstandings, does it not? I had a former student who was looking to go on a short-term, not long-term, short-term missionary trip. And she said, my parents have told me I can't do it. I said, oh, is it money, is it timing? She goes, oh, no, they're afraid that you're going to wind up on the mission field. And they told me that. And I said, you can't go. Careful. Because Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to be single-minded. This doesn't mean you neglect your family. You love them, yes. But your devotion is to me. That's a hard pill to swallow. And he doesn't end there. You, you kind of go, okay, got that. That's great. But then he, then he goes on to state, in fact, he says, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Think about that. We're not talking about psychological hostility or sectarian separation. What we're dealing with, and in fact, Paul mentions this, that in the last day, there will be people who are lovers of themselves. He told Timothy and his second epistle to him. No, no, we're called to be committed to the Lord. And, and this, you know, remember the old song? It's all about you, Jesus. I won't sing. Now you know why I'm not on the worship team. I will not be going to the meeting next Sunday. Uh, it's all about you, Jesus. You know, it's been changed by some to say it's some about you, Jesus, or it's all about me, Jesus, right? And, and what the Lord is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to even give up your attention on yourself. Disciple, what does that term mean? It's a learner, one who attaches himself or herself to a teacher in order to learn a trade or a subject. It's used 265 times in the Gospels and Acts. It's key. That's why one of the reasons we're, we're, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke. I wanted to look at this topic of discipleship. What does it mean to follow the Lord? And Jesus is calling for complete devotion to him. No person, including one's own self, should come before the Lord. There's a quote there at the bottom of your notes by Tannehill. He says, discipleship is not merely another commitment which we add to the long list of our other commitments, but it is the commitment. 
demanding a reordering of our lives from the bottom up. It's Christ. I love the Getty song we just sang, and Christ alone. (laughs) And so this section is a call for followers to join him. Jesus is saying, come join me. And it's important because what, where are we at in this narrative? We're starting to move towards Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? Taking up his cross and dying for us. And and what does Jesus say? Well, he's going to highlight that here in a second in, in verse 27. That's what he says. First command or qualification in discipleship, hating family, hating yourself in the sense of loving, being single-minded and your focus on me, giving away up your aspirations, your desires, and all those social connections because I come first. But look at the second, verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be his disciple. This is the second thing he says about what would hinder you and what would hinder you is not taking up your cross Matthew in his parallel text of this says taking up your cross but look how Luke phrases this did you see the wording look what he says whoever does not carry this idea in fact it's in present tense so this is ongoing which further highlights we're on this journey we're moving and he says you need to take up your cross and and carry it This isn't the first time Dr. Luke's talked about the cross, is it? We saw in chapter 9, verse 23, if any man, text states, well, Jesus speaking, it's red letters, right? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It coincides a bit with this, you know, hating yourself and even his own life, I should say, that fits here because it's a call it's a call to to shame it's it's a call to suffering and I would argue even death how troubling this would have been in the first century I can just imagine this crowd they're reeling from hearing the first part about you gotta hate your mother or brother that's so foreign to them and then he says take up a cross and everyone in the first century knew what that meant (laughs) that's crucifixion it was seldom talked about. In fact, in ancient literature, you'll find a few references to crucifixions because it was so horrific. It was, everyone knew about it, no one talked about it. And, and so for him to highlight that, I mean, the thought of wearing a cross around your neck, oh my goodness, it would just be so foreign to them. And, and, and you're asking, Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Then you're going to identify with my shame, my suffering. You're gonna surrender to my will. It means death to self, to our own plans, our ambitions, and willingness to serve him. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his cost of discipleship. If you don't know who he is, he died one month before World War II ended. He was one of the few pastors who spoke out against Hitler and the Nazi regime. He writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And for Bonhoeffer, that was literal. And so you say, okay, let me, what does that all tell? Well, Jesus gives us two illustrations. Look at verse 28. The first of these is about a fellow who wants to do an expansion on the house, (laughs) building project. Uh, He wouldn't do that today because there's no materials. But anyway, uh, he's going to do that in the first century. That's great. 
and he's wanting to build a tower. And, and the text tells he doesn't sit down first, or doesn't he sit down first? In other words, he does and computes the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. And that's being a good steward. And he talks about this and in this process, he's fearful. But, but notice, by the way, the tower is probably for security purposes to, to manage the vineyard. This isn't a tower for the, the city gates. This is for your yard or your vineyard and the case being here. And the text tells us he's given reflection, he, reason assessment. Is this wise to do this? And notice what is driving his concern. Yes, there's cost, but what's the underlying issue? There's fear of public ridicule. Rather than the prospect of failure, he provides the driving force of the parable. And the term, notice it says the text is very clear. It says if he does this in verse 29, he can't finish. It says they'll begin to make fun of him. It's the same term used of the soldiers when they mock Jesus on the cross, or the whole scene. He doesn't want to fall into that camp. And, and even this man in the, in the text here seems to only drive home the, the point that this guy is crazy, you know, stressing the ridicule that's going to be brought into play. And so he says, listen, you got to consider the cost that's involved. I remember there was this call for mus musicians and people to try out for this musical Romeo and Juliet when I was in college many moons ago. This was before Lori, so there was this girl that I liked, and she, I knew she was going to be in it. She was in the leading roles in all of them, so I thought, I'm going to try out, and I didn't think about the implications of trying out and what that meant. I got a very small role, and wouldn't you know, my only line was, her looks are pale, but I can't figure out if it's pale or pale, and I couldn't get that down, so I had the accent problem. Uh, my lack of acting abilities, I did not consider those, and I certainly didn't consider about wearing tights. That was <laughs> awful. She didn't like me anyway, so I don't know why I went for it, right? And I love Danker and his comment about following Jesus. He said, it's not an invitation to an ice cream social. <laughs> this is a call that cannot be taken lightly. He says, you're to take up your cross and follow. And, and, and so similar in this illustration is, is this fellow who's laying it all out. What does that entail? It's similar to what's said at a wedding, right? It is not to be entered into lightly. <laughs> you get the idea. And that's the, 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 uh, what's trying to be conveyed here. And then Jesus gives another illustration that we see about a king in verse 31. He has half the troops of the enemy that's coming marching in. And for him, there's not only embarrassment, there's potential disaster, if not death, losing his entire realm. And even when the enemy is far away, I love how this text says it, he says that even when the enemy was far away, in verse 32, he was asking for terms of peace. The king counted the cost and said, no, 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 this, this isn't worth it. So what's the similarity between these two, the builder and the king? Both men are self-driven. They initiate the process. Time is taken to evaluate the situation. They don't want to rush into this. Both want to know what resources they have they both have their eyes on the end, don't they? What would happen if all of this comes to fruition? And finally, they are both concerned with a poor outcome. Some scholars argue that the builder 
and the king is referencing Jesus and he cannot get the job done with half-hearted followers. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the context is what do you do with Jesus and, 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 and the implications for us as we look to follow Christ. And so I think the implications are clear. We need to take some time to assess our current situation. Is this life working for us? <laughs> Without Jesus, are we finding true joy, peace, and hope? Furthermore, can we tackle this life on our own? If not, what do we need to do? And third, what's the end game? How do we see this life ending? Remember last week's text that we looked at? What did Jesus say in Luke 13? These people that are standing, knocking at the door, saying, hey, open up. What does Jesus say? I don't even know where you came from. Go away, depart, leave me. So I think the, these two images is, is calling for us to say, what do we do? What do we do with this Jesus? And if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, careful, careful, careful. We don't know the hour. And we looked at the text last week, that door can close and it will not be reopened. Now is the hour in which to respond. And so we, we need to ponder these questions that the Lord delivers. And in fact, as we do, and we're still trying to get our mind around what do we do with family, this cross business, he's not done. Jesus gives another in verse 33, and he says in the same way, if one of you want to be my disciples, what does he state? He, he has to renounce all his possessions. This is the final hurdle, or that 42-inch open high to the discipleship, right? Call. The term to, for, to renounce is very clear. It's to forsake, to say goodbye to Worldly wealth, the idea here is every, all of your possessions. And, and I think what Jesus is, is stating here, again, is a mindset. It's not, I love what Daryl Bach wrote. He said, it's not how little one can give that is the question. It's how much does God deserve? Zacchaeus did not sell all that he had to follow Jesus. He made things right. He was generous. Jesus wore a seamless robe. Joseph of Arimathea, thank goodness he didn't sell the tomb, family tomb. It was used for Jesus' burial, which he didn't stay in very long, but nonetheless, right? Remember, it's not the love of money. It's the, uh, it is the love of money, not the presence of money. And so what is the text saying? I, I think it's saying preoccupation with wealth has a disastrous effect on the possibility of coming to terms with being a disciple of Christ. And so, similar to the IRS auditor, we should state uh, who declares, the trick is to stop thinking of this as your money. <laughs> as the IRS might state, Jesus is saying the same thing. I mean, think about the parable of the sower, which we looked at many moons ago, Luke 8. The one that, that grew up, and it says the thorns strangled it so it didn't bear fruit. And Jesus states, when they have heard, they go forth, they're choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to fruition. There's, there's no call on a particular percentage because what the Lord is saying, it's, it's all mine. 
You're all mine. If you want to be a follower of me, this is what it entails. Ananias and Sapphira, remember those yahoos? They got struck down by God because they, they lied. They didn't, it wasn't about how much money they didn't give to the church. It was their hypocrisy and their lying that got them struck down dead. And the Lord is saying, listen, this is all ours, and we're about to embark on a capital campaign. And the, the challenge is going to be to give, but in so doing, we have to be reminded, this is all the Lord's. This is, this is His. And how we handle our finances doesn't just reflect our hearts. Our hearts reflect whether or not we're following our finances Seek first the kingdom of God, the Lord states, not financial security, toys, or greater popularity. <laughs> oh, well, that was hard. And he doesn't get done, he doesn't end there, because Jesus says, great, these are the three calls for what it means to follow me. And then Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, it's useless. This whole section has created quite a bit of controversy among scholars because, let's face it, salt is good for flavoring, preservative, it can destroy the soil, it can enhance the soil. It's a catalyst in certain ovens in the first century. And so it shouldn't surprise you, there's like over 11 interpretations of exactly what is the salt that Jesus is referring to. Well, I'm glad you came this morning because we're gonna give you the answer. There are three that I would propose, and I base this on Don Garlington's work that just came out a few years ago, and I think he's right. He looks at the Old Testament, he looks at biblical theology, and he says, what do we see with the whole concept of salt? And he says, first of all, salt serves as a, a symbol of permanence and covenant fidelity. In Luke 2, or excuse me, Leviticus 2, and even throughout the Old Testament, salt was required in the seasoning of the sacrifice. Salt was to be present, and Gordon, Gordon Winham thinks that this phrase, the use of salt, suggests that salt symbolized the covenant itself. And when Jesus states, you're to be the salt of this earth, you are the new covenant, you're the representatives of me on this globe. And this is important Secondly, salt symbolizes the covenant fellowship present at the sacrificial mills. Salt symbolizes purity throughout the Old Testament. It's, the phrase seasoned with salt was an indication this is God who is present in this midst. And you think about even Colossians. Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. And so there's a factor of, of purity and salt also serves as a curse. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife. When we'd have people float in the Dead Sea, I said, did you taste it salty? And they said, yep. I said, just, you just tasted Lot's wife. The salt. Judges 9 as well. Abimelech, he destroys Shechem. And what does he do? He brings in the salt trucks and they desecrate the ground to say nothing else will grow here. We're done. And so it can also be used as a curse. What are the implications for us? We are to exhibit covenant, I would argue, fidelity and preserve the continuance of the new covenant. We serve as a witness to the Lord and to the gospel. We also serve as a blessing to others. 
Similar to the mill, we also seek to preserve the truth in a world that wishes to eliminate the message. And finally, the message we deliver, it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? It also carries a curse for those who do not wish to become involved. One scholar writes, the disciples are seen as in the prophetic succession and thus like their Old Testament counterpoints as covenant witnesses and guarantees to this age. And so as we serve as salt in this world, notice the text says, be careful because it can lose its saltiness and there is no value. And you say, well, how does salt lose its saltiness? And that's a great question. Some have argued, well, it's referring to the bakers. They covered their floors of their ovens with salt to give a catalyst to the burning fuel. And after a time, that effect wore off and the, that salt was thrown away. Possibly. Others argue, no, it's those, those pockets of water outside of the Dead Sea that start to evaporate and the other impurities such as gypsum and others come to the surface and that salt is useless. It's also mixed with dirt. You couldn't use that. And so some argue there. I think Luke is stating the impossible. The Babylonian Talmud, rabbinic writings, I realize in the 600s AD, but it argues that salt Losing its flavor is impossible. I think what Luke is indicating that is if you are truly a follower of Jesus, that's impossible. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are single-minded. You're elevating Christ. You, you are exalting his name. And so what does, in this realm of impossibility, he's saying if, if you're truly a follower of him and this should happen, he says, you're not only used, you're, you're not even good for the refuse pile. I mean, how detestable, right? The place of repulsion. You're not even good enough for that. We can't use you. And notice the text is clear. Failure to respond, it says, it is to be thrown out. And that is a very key phrase that's used throughout the New Testament, even in Luke. It indicates you're rejected from the presence of God. You're like the, those that said, knocking at the doors to let us in, and the Lord says, no. Matthew 5, in his reference, says that, this, that if you become this way, you're good for nothing. And that term is used inter interchangeably for fool. Good for nothing, or it is foolish. And what is a fool? an unbeliever, or an apostate in the New Testament. Not to be sold out totally to Christ is a tragic waste of what could be a valuable opportunity. Green, in his commentary, writes, those who attempt to journey with Jesus without a thoroughgoing commitment to God's purpose, an allegiance to God that relates and, and energizes all other relationships and social values are not worthy of the designation of disciple. <laughs> this is all or nothing. And, and so I've got some principles there for you in the notes. First of all, we are called to accept death to everything that our carnal self wants to possess. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's exaltation of self, or it's that new toy that you just have to have. There's nothing wrong with toys. There's nothing wrong with relationships, but they cannot eclipse Christ. And that is what self-denial means. 
It's following Jesus. And, and Jesus is very clear. There's no smoke and mirrors. You know, you sign the dotted line. Oh, I didn't tell you about the next page, the small print. We're very upfront and honest. My colleague had bought a piece of pottery in Israel. And oh, he was so proud of that. And the, the shopkeeper said, I'll wrap it up for you. And, and then he brought it out in a bag. He said, there you go. We got back to the States because he didn't want to unwrap it because you're flying, you don't want to hurt it. And the shopkeeper had done a bait and switch. Uh, the piece that he bought was nowhere near as nice as the one that was wrapped up. Little did that shopkeeper know we went back about every six months. <laughs> Oops. And Jesus is not playing games here. This isn't, oh, we didn't realize this was going to happen. There's no false expectancies, no illusions, no bargains. There is a, I love reading missionary stories, especially those that we, that these giants of the faith we know really little about, and one day we're going to meet them. What a day that'll be, right? And I, I have to introduce you to this one. Uh, her name is Martha Wall. I'd never heard of her. Started reading a book that she had written. Uh, she served as a nurse in the mission field in British Nigeria working with lepers during the 30s and 40s. Look at the quote that she states in the book. It is sin to allow earnest young Christians to plan mediocre lives around a materialistic ideal without challenging them to battle. We sin if we do not often to lead the, the charge. God has sent us into a stirring conflict, one that should stir response to the blood of every Christian. We carry the banner of one who has already conquered, and God holds us responsible for advance. Wow. It's what Paul, again, going back to his letters to little Timmy, he says in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is the root of all evil, but, he says in verse 11, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight. Consider the cost. I mean, what's the alternative of not following Jesus? <laughs> the, the, you forfeit the fellowship of the saints. You, you forfeit the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You, you forfeit eternity. Yes, the call is costly. It's worth every penny. And that leads us to the second. Obedience to Christ is faith present, faith visible, and faith in action. Jerry Bridges writes, so often we try to develop Christian character and conduct without taking the time to develop God-centered devotion. We try to please God without taking the time to walk with him and develop a relationship with him. And he says, this is impossible to do. If you're distracted, it's hard to focus. This week at the men's Bible study, I've never done this for six years. I forgot my computer. Well, there goes that PowerPoint presentation. But it's because I had so many things going on. I was distracted and it wasn't focused. And that's what the Lord's saying. I, I, I need you to be a laser beam. Mama, child, your own desires, suffering, don't let it distract you. Focus here. This is where we need to be. To forgo the emotional support and identity with one's family, that takes faith. 
To place the Lord over one's aspirations, desires, and expectations, that takes faith. To relinquish security and satisfaction which comes from an abundance of life's possessions, that takes faith. And what's faith? Hebrews 11 states, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. I mean, think about Hebrews 11. Let's, let's deal with family for a minute. Abel didn't really care what his brother thought. Abraham, he left her. Yeah, he took daddy with him, but he left a lot of other family members and friends back in the land of the Chaldees. Or, or what about Gideon? Remember his first call? What was his first assignment? Destroy his father's idols. That didn't go over well, I'll assure you. And then let's talk about one's own well-being. How are they described in Hebrews 11? They were tortured, mocked, flogged, chained, imprisoned, stoned, sawn apart, murdered with a sword, destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Ouch. And then what about possessions? What does it tell us about Moses? It says Moses chose to be ill-treated than to be identified with the royal court and enjoy sin's fleeting pleasures. No wonder the text tells us in Hebrews 11, these people, the world wasn't even worthy of them. If you want something to write on your tombstone, that's the line. The world was not worthy of Joe or Sally. They were all commended for their faith, for God has provided something better for us so that we would be made perfect together with us. This idea to call and follow Jesus... Yeah, it's heavy, but all oh, the joy that comes. And what a day it'll be to hear about Abraham telling us the stories of how he left Ur and all its riches to follow the Lord or those who were sown apart. Yep. And that leads us to the third. Just as salt flavors every drop in the ocean may our lives have a positive impact on all with whom we meet. <laughs> the average person consumes 3,400 grams of salt per day. Some more than others in this room, I understand. Salt is the only rock we eat, I think. Uh, but it's essential. It's essential for flavoring of our food. It gives us aroma. It balances other flavors. It makes meat taste yummy. And it preserves food for months, maybe even years. And so, may we be salt in the world that desperately needs the sweet aroma of the gospel and a preservative in a culture that is rotting to the core. Right? This is what we're called to do. And so, I'm going to give you a little acronym. You want to write this down. It's free today. But you want to write it down. And it's bold. That's the term. And so let me give you this acronym. The B stands for broadcasting the gospel. <laughs> to, to be salt, we are to be a light, right? We're to, 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 to give. And, and there's, there's a track stand right outside on the main table. Grab one of these. And, and in fact, this week, pray, Lord, give me just one person that I could meet that, that I want to give this to. Now, if you give it to the waitress, make sure you're also leaving a good tip. <laughs> but it's there, right? And, and think of Acts 4.12. There is salvation by no other. There's no other name under heaven given among men that we might be saved. 
Erwin Lutzer, the book that I've referred to before, We Will Not Be Silent, writes, Let us remember that the gospel is not what we can do for Jesus, but we, what Jesus has done for us. We must tell this generation that social justice, even at its best, is not the gospel. This, well, this is the gospel, what Christ has done for us. And so we need to be busy. And so bold starts with broadcasting the gospel. That's how we can be salt. Let me give you the O, open the word. We need to be passionate about the truth. If I've heard it once, I've heard it so many times, even this past week, well, you don't know who to trust. You can trust this. Yeah, I know, the news is crazy, the politicians are nuts, I mean, the whole world's gone crazy, right? Who can you trust? I got someone for you, it's Jesus, right? And so open the word, we need to be students of the word. L, look to love. Our lives need to be laced with grace and humility as we seek to love the Lord and those around us. And this world desperately needs someone who cares, <laughs> sincerely cares. And so, broadcast the gospel, open the word, look to love, and the D stands for dare to engage. We need to engage our culture and stand against that which is against the truth. If we are silent, who's gonna stand up for truth? And so I'm so grateful that our theme for the missions conference starting next week is prepare to stand. That's what we need. We need to be saints and that are salt in a world that is lost or has no flavor and is rotting to the core. Bold, broadcast the gospel, open the word, look to love and dare to engage. Father, the call to follow you, whew, it's a tough one. There's so much in this world, including ourselves, that we love. <laughs> and yet we are called to be single-minded in our devotion to you. It's a reasonable request. Because after all, you gave your life for us. You rescued us. You died on a cross and paid the sin that we should have paid. We should have been damned to hell for all eternity. And yet you've made it an opportunity, a means to circumvent that, not just for fire insurance purposes, but so that we could have a relationship with you. And so the request to follow, the choice is clear, I guess. It's, it's either slaved to sin or slaved to Christ. And Lord, we want the freedoms that come because we are your servant. We're followers of you. We thank you, we praise you for your son in whose name we pray.